at least half the people who come to see me have been speaking to other people on the internet. Right, which is what's led them to you. Yes. Yeah. And I'm usually seeing people who failed two, three, four cycles. Sure. And then they spin off. Welcome to episode 79 of the Fertility Podcast. Now, this episode is a really special one. If you have been listening to this podcast, you'll know me, Natalie, your host, and you'll know that I started making this podcast in September 2014, once pregnant from successful fertility treatment. You'll also know if you've listened for a while that for the first year of the podcast, well, until my son turned one, I was anonymous. And part of that reason was because... When we found out we needed treatment, we were told that the problem we had was with my husband, that it was male factor, and we were therefore going to have ICSI. And we felt that we were told really insensitively, the consultant that told us pretty much went, the problem's with you, to my other half. It was just before Christmas, and it had a massive impact, as you'd expect. And my husband, Rich, didn't really talk about it, and hasn't really talked about it. And from the work that I do on this podcast... I get to meet and speak to all sorts of different people. And I was told about Jonathan Ramsey, who is a urologist, who I was keen to talk to. I'm always interested in putting a spotlight on male infertility issues. And Jonathan and I had a really interesting conversation where I told him about our journey and how my husband had been dealt with. And he said he'd like to meet the pair of us. So after a discussion with Rich we decided to go meet Jonathan. And what you're going to hear is Rich and Jonathan talking. We took our results of Rich's uh, semen analysis and Jonathan talked through uh, what he thought of them with the pair of us. And this is such a significant episode for me. And what I want to say is that have a listen to the conversation. It's a bit of a different style of podcast, so just go with it. But have a listen to the discussions between Rich and Jonathan and the insight that Jonathan gives on his feelings about fertility treatment when it is a male factor issue. And if you're in a uh, relationship where you've been told it's male factor, if this is your other half or if this is you listening and thinking, okay, yeah, that, that applies, then just take on board that Rich wasn't going to talk about this to anybody and like I say hasn't and he decided to have this conversation and I think at the end of it felt that it was actually quite empowering getting this information and has agreed for me to use it to get awareness out there and what I think you'll find from listening to Jonathan is that he will make you ask more questions about your own diagnosis and I'm hoping that he will give you the courage to maybe ask for more investigations if for example you have been told the reason that you're not getting pregnant is unexplained infertility and your husband or you as the guy hasn't really had anything other than just a a basic semen analysis then ask for more investigation to be done there are different tests that can be done that look at sperm dna damage And as you'll hear Jonathan explain, there is intervention that can happen that can help sperm health, okay? And this is something that isn't really happening at the moment. More often than not, if there is unexplained infertility or if it's a male factor issue, ICSI is often the solution. And I'm not saying, and Jonathan doesn't say that that's not the right solution. And we're an example of a couple who had it and it worked first time and we have a beautiful two-year-old boy. However, what I would like 
the outcome of you listening to this podcast to be is that you've got more questions to ask. So to explain what you're going to hear is Jonathan Ramsey and Rich, my husband, having a discussion. I do pop up every now and again. Rich did a pretty good job with his debut on the podcast. So here are the pair of them. So Richard, share with me your story. My story? Um, it seems to be a little while ago now, to be honest with you, but um, we were trying for baby for a while, and was it? I think we went and had test done, it was literally the week before Christmas two years ago, no, three years ago. Well, we had them with our GP, I think, first. We made a decision to go private, I don't know whether that was the first or second test, but we had two we had two tests, you had two tests, Yeah. one of which was private yeah. along the way, and that was the one at Christmas. And how long had you been trying? Well, we got married in 2012, and we kind of started trying then, that was the September. Yeah, so it's a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And do you think during that time that you've ever been pregnant? No. no. So you're quite clear that nothing had happened. Yeah. So you had some tests. Yes, right. Which are? Just there. Which are just here. It's very good, this Richard. Always the management yeah, well, exactly. has all the information. That's it. <laughs> and of course, this is pretty typical because there's a big difference between the two. And only a month apart, uh, the total sperm count has differed from three to nine. And that's, that's, that's quite an important thing, because this is natural variation. Right. So the first one, the total count is three million. The second one is two times 4.9, right. nearly 10 million. See? So that's a huge biological variation. Mm. And again, with the normal frame rate, one of them says 5% and the other says 10%. Right. So this actually is a common cause of worry and difficulty before we've even begun because one sperm count is hopeless right. because it could be if these numbers have been much greater one sperm count could have been normal right sure um, or the first one might have been abnormal yeah and people then get off on the wrong track it's interesting as you said because um, i've spent the last few years um working in health and nutrition so, you know, we do readings on people's uh, stats, if you like, and they are only a snapshot of somebody at a precise moment of time. And obviously, unless I'm taking the same readings off of you at the same time on the same day, week on week, the variations could be massive. Precisely so. The first interesting thing here, in more general terms, is that one would generally take three. Right. Yeah, maybe even four to see which side of normality or yeah. abnormality. Yeah. And so here's a bit of past medical history. Not much here. Bit of trouble with the wrist. You don't read the doctors very often. No. Uh, it's mainly structural stuff rather than health. Yeah. I think we'd, we'd requested that to see whether you'd had months. Mm. We were uh, trying yeah. to find yeah. something in the history. Sure. And, and then what happened? So we had the semen analysis. The one before Christmas is the one that we had privately, which is when we were told we needed to have ixing. 
by January the one on the NHS had come through, uh-huh. but we were we just went and had we had fertility uh-huh. treatment. Yeah. We were told because I was thirty six, uh-huh. and the issue was with me with Rich. So that basically our only option was to go through ICSI, and we didn't question it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean we had no reason to question because we were looking for answers as to why we hadn't had a. Okay. Yeah, and we were eligible for three rounds yeah. at that point. I mean, the interesting thing was that we did one round and was successful and have a, you know, a, a brilliant little boy. But you know, it's interesting to know what other options were potentially mm. available. And you know, just because that was it did work for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that mm. it was even the right way to go. But do you remember anybody saying to us about the low success of ICSI? Because I don't. No, I don't remember that. The interesting thing from as well, looking back, is that we've got a lot of friends, actually, when you think about it, a lot of friends that have been through fertility treatment and with maybe lower success rates and they've had to go for a few rounds. So almost the fact that we were so lucky to go through one round and, and it worked maybe means that there was less issue mm. if, if it was such a simple process for us to just... Sure. Well, the first thing to say... In retrospect, and it's very easy to have this conversation in retrospect because you've been lucky. Yeah. Which is that as a rule of thumb, one looks at the total motile sperm count as being a predictor of natural conception. And so on your better test, the total motile sperm count is the the numbers, the concentration times the volume, times 45%. Right. So that's about 5 million. And if you've got a motile sperm count of 5 million and quite a few normal looking sperm, then your chance is certainly not zero. Right. So the cumulative chance of a pregnancy over two or three years in a man with a total motile sperm count of 5 might be something in the order of 20%. Right. Now, there's not much research in this because, Mm. of course, ever since ICSI was developed, exactly what happened to you is typical. So here's a couple, two years without having had a baby, low sperm count, the lady's 36, we're all feeling a bit worried about this, we're pushing against an open door, just do it. Yeah. yeah. So it is a one response. Yeah. Fits all. Now, is that wrong? Well, not necessarily. Yeah. But society has decided that that's what we're going to do. Yes. The funders have decided. Yes. Whether it's your funds or the government's funds, mm. that's what we do. Now, of course, behind your question is, could we have improved this? such that there might have been a natural conception? And the answer to that is yes. But on the other hand, you two represent the reason that the gynaecologists would argue that ICSI as a first response is the right response. What would you mean by that? you're, because you succeeded, right. what they said was, oh, this is absolutely straightforward. Yeah. This is a low sperm count, yeah. in brackets. You'll never do it naturally. Yeah. Very demeaning for you yeah. to hear that. Sure. But to say you'll never do it naturally, of course, justifies a big intervention. Yeah. 
you have a baby, QED intervention justified. But you're absolutely right that, of course, it's more likely that that intervention, if you look at the statistics, mm. it's more likely that it would have failed than succeeded. Right, yeah. Twice as likely to fail as to succeed. Yeah. Um, and of course, the problem is not so much for you two, because you've succeeded, but the problem is that if you exactly the same people had had three goes that hadn't worked, which statistically could have happened, then you two feel even worse because you think, well, we were told the only way of doing it was ICSI, and now this, and now it's failed three times. So the consequence of that is that both of you are upset, demeaned, emasculated, and many couples just sort of stop even trying because they think, well, we were told that the only chance was ICSI, it hasn't worked, so now we're stuck. So let's look at the alternative. If one had done more tests here, some hormones, possibly an ultrasound to see if there was a varicocele, that sort of thing, make sure there's no sign of inflammation or infection, then one could have, not saying that we would, but one could have bounced up the total motile sperm count from 5 million to 10 or 15 million, and you might have done it naturally, whilst waiting for IVF. Um, so it could have been different. Sure. But actually, seeing as the outcome's a baby, yeah. We're there, yeah. But obviously, um, from like you say, a one size fits all doesn't necessarily fit all. Precisely, yeah. So, at this time, were you taking any medicines, going to the gym? Well, yeah. I mean, my at the time I was working as a personal trainer, so I trained a lot, uh, a lot. Yeah. And and as a consequence, I did change a lot in my lifestyle. I tried to, you know, so I stopped cycling. I stopped eating soy products. Mm -hmm. Was that before this test? It was before the second test, I think. Yeah. Okay. It was before the second test, wasn't it? Because I'm when we got the tight underpants, all of the. When we got the first test back, we then we then researched for ourselves what we could change. Yes. What we thought we could change. Do we know what the sperm? test was when you came to have the IVF? No, I don't. I didn't have a record of that. And were you, uh, Richard, taking any supplements? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I worked for a nutrition company, uh, right. interestingly, so I used to use a lot of their supplements. Did you? Yeah. But um, I said used to, I still sort of do, and did all the way through the mm. IVF treatment. But, but some of those are soy-based, but I cut all the soy-based ones okay. out. But were you taking any bodybuilding stuff? No. no, any oh, no, 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 I don't. No, no. No, no, and nothing that could have been no. testosterone based no. or. I mean, I assume they test the sample, the semen sample, at the point of. Yes. EXE. The, the reason is that most men faced with that total motel count of five, again, typical a month later, it's actually apparently worse. Mm. But if one had thrown everything at you, yeah. then one would expect that best one to have improved a bit. Sure. And that's without any other investigation yeah. at all. So I would always investigate a bloke like you fully sure. on the basis that actually you had quite a lot of normal looking sperm on both counts. You had reasonable motility on one of them and 
a total sperm count on one of the 10 million. It's, it's interesting, so, sorry, that you say that, because I remember... We weren't told that at all. Well, I remember sitting with the second guy and him basically saying the complete opposite. He said the problem's with you. But he said that you've got low mobility, most of them aren't even working. Well, you see, that again is typical, because we're only going to have one outcome. So yeah. this is one of the interesting medical consultations. Yeah. That is the IVF consultation, the fertility consultation, in which there is only going to be one outcome. Sure, of course. Which is IVF. Yeah. So everything that is said has to justify that outcome yeah. because we don't have any other possibilities. Yeah. There, there are no other alternatives. Yeah. So the one thing, and this is only human nature, this isn't wickedness, the one thing an IVF specialist will never say, well, not never, but is unlikely to say, oh, well, I'm sure we can improve this, or this isn't too bad, because once you start saying that, mm. then there's a conversation about a male semen analysis and what you could do. Yeah. Then there becomes a necessity to investigate it. Mm. Now, even if the gynaecologist theoretically knows how to investigate it, within the funding envelope that is fertility treatment, yeah. There's no money to do that. Yeah. There's no provision. Yeah. So everything in that consultation has to be aimed towards the outcome. It's 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 the ultimate example of manipulation. Yeah. Because ultimately, unless they do the IVF treatment, there's no funding on their part. There's no other place to go. Yeah. And you don't want to fill the bloke's heads with head with all kinds of sort of wicked ideas that he could be normal. Yeah. You know, I mean, crikey. <laughs> because then you, then quite frankly. Yeah. The private sector, certainly, you were losing customers. Sure. Um, so I'm not saying that they reached a wrong conclusion. Well, no. But because it could have been the right conclusion, but they reached it on zero evidence. The only evidence, real evidence, and this they would point to, is that you'd been trying for two years, mm. and Natalie was only 36, mm. and they had plenty of motile sperm. So they're saying to themselves, okay. So, this is a fair deal. They haven't done it naturally. He's got some sperm. She's only 36. Let's just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and on one level, that is perfectly fine. Well, we got the outcome we wanted. But to get to that decision, I think we both really struggled. You know, the, the process of sort of being told. It, it, it's basically like you've got no hope. You have to do well, this. Well, I've got a letter here because we complained to that clinic about how we were told, and this is the letter in response, inviting us back for, for another test to which we were never going to, because it was, the, I think I said when we first spoke, it was the 23rd of December, hmm. and we were told, you've got no hope, this is your only hope, and it's interesting you say you're only 36, because the way we were told was that it's because you're 36, yeah. you need this. Yes, every, everything pushes, yeah, they're little incremental pushes, so, mm. uh, so it's good and it's not tactic. wickedness, it's just... It's just the way it happens. No, no, of course. But with that being the case, could they not have said, you could go and have some more investigations, but you'd have to pay for them? As in, because yes, we, we asked for advice well, and we weren't they, given it. Well, they could have done, but then, of course, they have to know how to interpret the investigations. And seeing as they've never, ever done anything except IVF, right. they don't really know. I mean, in London now, only one of the clinics is beginning to send patients off to see urologists. That's the busiest clinic, the Lister, 
they got plenty of work, they weren't really worried. And half the gynaecologists who work there are beginning, just beginning, to get the drift and say, well, let's just, you know, mm. let's involve somebody. But of course, it's not all urologists. There are relatively very few of us in the whole of the UK who know anything about this for the very reason that the people we could have studied are banged up in the fertility area. We never see you. So you have to be in a peculiar place geographically, like West London, surrounded by fertility units, with the power of the internet so that patients talk to each other, because at least half the people who come to see me have been speaking to other people on the internet. Right, which is what's led them to you. Yes. Yeah. And I'm usually seeing people who failed two, three, four cycles. Sure. And then they spin off. And with our results in mind, mm -hmm. with regards to secondary infertility, with us wanting to have a second child, mm. there's the assumption that we've got frozen embryos and that would be what we'd have to do. Mm -hmm. So with what you see in front of you, could there then be a conversation actually there could be more investigation into Absolutely. Richard and, and then mm. so from a frozen round point of view that's about a thousand pounds yes so from an investigation that's price tag it, is it about the same mm. so I suppose then from a couple's point of view it's weighing out whether so in your case you've done very well from IVF mm. there's no reason in your case mm. There's no reason to assume that the frozen embryos are any worse. They're probably okay mm. on balance. So in your case, going down the frozen embryo pathway is fine. And in a way, the two of you justify the current way in which yeah. fertility is managed. Yeah. But, but you are unusual. Yeah. Right. You see, you would be first go successful age 36 you are one third or less than the population of couples who can't have babies right so you are in an unusual category but nonetheless with frozen embryos you could you could go is there a justification you're asking in investigating Richard at this point well knowledge of course is power and knowledge is comfortable because if we found a worse semen analysis and I examined you and found no abnormality and we did some simple tests for hormones and inflammation in the sperm and if those were all normal then of course your position is utterly justified. It was the right thing to do yeah. on the basis of not much information but nonetheless it was the right thing to do. You've got some frozen embryos, you're sitting pretty. So one reason to investigate you would be con to confirm that you're in the right place. Yeah. The other reason would be to say, well, we might find something. Mm. So you represent an unusual yeah, sure. group. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and I would go along with what the two of you felt mm. you wanted. Really, it's like to us, what difference does it really make now? But, but at the same time, it would be interesting to know. And even from a, I suppose, uh, even from a me medical point of view, it, it goes into information, doesn't it? That... Well, knowledge is power. Yeah. Incomplete knowledge can be very corrosive. Yeah. Because if you haven't succeeded, 
<coughs> and all we've got is a couple of semen analyses. Mm. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think the impact it had on how you felt mm. was pretty devastating as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not something that I openly go around talking to people about no. the fact that we had Phoenix Freud in the yeah. I love the name. Phoenix. Thank you. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, quite, quite literally. He, he arose. He arose, yeah. yeah. I think it was only last year that we told my dad. So, you know, it's definitely something that we don't openly talk about. Well, I, don't, don't. I don't. Natalie makes podcasts about it, but I don't. Can I examine you, Richard? Uh, yeah, if you wanted to. Well, do you yeah. want me to? Yeah, yeah, why not? Now, what's the purpose of physical yeah. examination? So, you begin to get a feel for whether a bloke is actually normal. Right. So first off, you look normal. You're not you're not overweight, yeah. um, without a beard, the sort of person who may have some genetic abnormality. Sure. Um, then we look to see the volume of the testicles. Yeah. And if that's normal, we're beginning to think, well this bloke ought to be okay. Mm. Make sure he hasn't got a varicocele. Mm. Make sure he hasn't got any of the other signs that go with a congenital or genetic reason for fertility. Yeah. And if all of that is fine, one thinks, well, this guy we can probably make better. Right. Let's go for it. Okay. That's the the purpose of the physical examination. Right. And I think that one of the inbuilt problems of the way we treat fertility is that the man is never examined. Yes. Yeah. At all. It's all so so nobody gets a feel. You know, mm. I mean you sort of do clinical work. Right. Yeah. yeah, you sort of get a feel for yeah. for normal normal and not normal. Yeah. And because you've seen so many people. Yeah, sure. And that experience, that conversation is inevitably denied to a man in the fertility unit. Yeah. I mean, if I started, well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't examine women. Yeah. I don't get a feel for whether a woman might have polycystic ovaries or might have a BMI which is counterproductive to fertility. I mean, I sort of get an idea, yeah. but it's not my business. Whereas I'm sure with gynecologists, they look at women and they think this lady is young for her chronological age. She's old for her chronological age. They're thinking, has she got PCOS? They're thinking, is this, where are we here? Because that's their trade. But the same thing doesn't apply when they look at the man. They hardly look at well, the man. Well, they don't, do they? They just look do at the same analysis. Yes. So you're a sort of sperm vehicle. It's amazing to think that, that nobody actually physically examined you. But the, the most interesting thing, actually, is it's only the fact that you've gone down podcast route and it, it's meant that you've done a huge amount of investigation that this is even something that we've suddenly gone oh yeah they never really looked to be but they got a result yeah so they would say well these people are the justification of what we do yeah yeah We're, it's our fault that they're doing it in a way <laughs> well i think it's it, it's an interesting example because i I don't remember us hearing the stats of the low success rates of ICSI, and maybe we were so overwhelmed with the information, but I don't remember being told that it had a low success rate. I remember being told it was our option, that we had three rounds, 
and we went for it. But maybe yeah. we probably didn't question anything. Sure. So the first thing is to say, if, if you've decided, if I've decided in my mind mm. that I can't improve this person's situation mm. and that she's getting a bit old, then I would say on the basis of the information that you presented here, firstly, it's not impossible that you get pregnant, mm. because it isn't. Mm. Because that huge Danish study published two years ago, which followed 1,100 couples, right. and it's very difficult to do this because it's 1,100 couples who are resolutely not going to have IVF. Right. So it's jolly difficult to find 1,100 couples. Yes. I've got a great idea, you're not going to have IVF. Yeah. But they did it in Denmark. And that's where the statistic of a cumulative 20% pregnancy rate from total motel counts of 5-10 million comes from. But there's only one study recently. Before ICSI, there were two studies, a big Canadian study that showed the same thing and a German study. So the first thing to say is that you're not practicing without purpose. Right. This could happen. Yeah, It could happen tonight. Yeah. So, you know, let's not tell you that this is hope. Um, that's just simple psychology and it happens to be true. And then I would say if I've decided in my mind that I can't make this better, I would say, well, you probably are heading for IVF. This is a stony route because the success rates are this, that and the other. But on the other hand, I would have said, with this sperm and this lady, if you go for three treatments, then you're 50, 60% likely to have a family. Mm. So I'd say the outlook actually is not that ghastly, but don't expect the first or the second one to work. Right. And actually in the meantime, for heaven's sake, don't stop trying. Yeah. Because you're not wrecked. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that bad. Sure. Because indeed, many sperm cups that one would see with a history like yours, there are 10 sperm. Right. You know. And they're not moving very well. You're light years away from that, like 10 million. Yeah. We never told that. So what would you like me to do? Yeah, well, if you want to examine me, let's do that. Take let's go into there. the room, yeah. I'll stay here. Naturally, yeah, you stay, stay here. here. So off the two of them went, and Rich had his first examination, and I still can't believe that nobody ever looked at him. So we had fertility treatment. We've been trying to get pregnant for you know, a good while. The tests were done on Rich. It showed that he had, you know, a low count. Nobody thought to look at him, to, to examine him, which, as Jonathan explains, something that he'd do. Why are men not examined when going through fertility treatment? One of the first things that you have as a woman is, you know, different checks. So, so why aren't guys checked? That's something that I don't understand, and I'd be really interested to know if anybody has had an examination at early stages of investigation. Do let me know. Or if you've had failed rounds of fertility treatment, has there been any discussion about more investigation about the guy, or is it just have another go? Because if that's the case, then damn well ask, say, check my bloody sperm. You'd have to quite swear. But, you know, let's get asking about it more. We're going to rejoin Jonathan in just a moment. The Fertility Podcast is supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey and you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. IVF on its own was not good for male fertility. 
because when there weren't enough sperm, then putting the sperm with the eggs didn't really work. So IVF alone was not a treatment for male fertility. So in the 80s, we were still looking at men. We looked in those days to see whether they had antibodies to sperm. We knew a bit about infections. We knew a bit about hormones. So we were still treating men in the 80s. But then in the early 90s, when sperm started to be injected into the eggs, the ICSI procedure, suddenly you could treat couples where it was clearly male factor. And this was a really big deal. So all the conferences of 1992, 91, 93 were all about the ICSI process. And the message that went out to the medical community and to urologists was that now we can do something for male fertility the first time. And during the 90s, that experience was built on, and the IVF units were very proud that for the first time they could deal with men with very low sperm counts, and they added techniques, laboratory techniques, to um, try to treat men with even lower sperm counts, and had success. Undeniably, they had success. So. This situation gathered momentum so that we reached the early 2000s and gynecologists and patients and doctors were beginning to say this should be opened up, that this shouldn't be so much a private activity. The National Health Service now should take on this business of IVF and ICSI, and the ICSI is for the men when it's male factor fertility. IVF, of course, more when it's female factor, but, but generally speaking, we can do it. The results are better, and this should be made available to everybody. And it began to, and then NHS units began to multiply. And of course, as the NHS units multiplied, so too did the private ones, because the same doctors working on the NHS ones often set up a private one. So, then the availability goes up. The next thing to say, so we've reached sort of 2009-10, is that when NICE looked at it, they said, okay, if you're going to do this, then you've got to do it properly. And what NICE really said was that if the um, live birth rate is across the board, late 20s, 30%, then Actually, we should be offering more than one cycle of treatment, and therefore, if you're going to apply proper statistics to this, then everybody should have three cycles of treatment. That's that's the evidence base, because then we will be giving all the couples a 50% or better chance of a baby. And the government sort of took that. The government sort of took that. But then when the funding goes down to the CCGs, they say, crikey, three cycles for everybody, really? And then we get into the postcode business and different CCGs use different criteria. So we went through a time at which there was big NHS expansion. Everybody seemingly could have at least one cycle and sometimes two and sometimes three. So in that period I was talking about, sort of 2000 to 2012-ish, 
then the urologists are seeing nobody. Mm. Nobody at all. Because they're all having one cycle, two cycles, three cycles. Um, so there's a whole generation of urologists who've never really had any exposure to male factor infertility. Then what happens, of course, is that the funding goes down. So now some places won't even give one cycle, some only one cycle. Then what happens, of course, is that the patients are forced into the private sector. Still, they're having three cycles, but still the men are not being exposed to urologists. Where we are at the moment is that there are some patients who are spinning off after failed IVF into urology, mostly in the private sector, because, of course, the GPs are a bit at a loss. They say to the couples, well, you know, you've, you've had your IVF. The GPs believe that the only thing you can do for men is IVF. And so, in a way, the fact that they feel that and don't refer them still perpetuates the business of urologists not being exposed. Now, we now come to 2017, and we are examining our health budgets critically, and IVF is becoming even less available, then I think that there is a chance now that more men will be referred in their own right for investigation and treatment up front, either to reduce the need for IVF, because we certainly can improve people such that men have natural conceptions, or, in fact, to improve their circumstances so that when they do have IVF, they're more likely to succeed. And I think it is an economic phenomenon that we're experiencing now, health economics and the health service, that might be the reason that urologists begin once again to be exposed to this problem. So it's taken more than 25 years ever since the instigation of ICSIC. So actually, thinking about it logically, it's not actually anybody's fault this is kind of happening because it's just a matter of process. It's like anything. You look at every, even what I've been doing, this whole idea of kind of health and it's kind of, you know, people being on crazy diets and actually what they've all suddenly realised is don't cut anything out of your diet, eat sensibly and do some exercise. You're so right. And because it's taken 20, 30 years to be, come around. Because that, the, the, the comment that you've just made, is extremely apposite for male fertility. Mm. Because if you eat processed meat, mm. as you know better than I, but processed meat, foods and fluids that have been stored in plastic bottles, mm. if you are exposed to air conditioning, to a whole range of cosmetics and cleaning materials and a whole load of stuff, then that impacts upon your health and your health impacts upon your fertility and without a doubt the the rise in obesity is we know associated with poor sperm production because of the weight gain around the the central weight weight gain leading to the metabolic syndrome the adipokines so cytokines that come from fat which which create uh, reactive oxygen species and inflammation it's all part of the same thing. Um, so you have a real go at weight loss and diet and nutrition. Yeah. You'll make a difference to most men's fertility and probably women's too. Mm. 
without doing anything else at all, without, without having done an investigation. And I think that health economies are beginning to realise this. This is a public health issue. So taking into account what's going on with the CCGs, cutting funding, and what's also been going on with public outcry and lobbying of MPs and CCGs to not cut fertility treatment, which has then been spoken about in Parliament, mm. in your view, if the awareness is out there more that men can ask mm. for this investigation to a point that it's then discussed in Parliament, do you, in your view, feel that then the funding could be put towards the urology work, right? because it's going to be cheaper than the fertility cycles? Yeah, the IVF cycles? I would entirely agree that it, it, we have reached a point at which we do have to address health issues, male health issues, that, has, that are associated with apparent subfertility. I think it's more important than public outcry and politics and funding because my personal belief is that fertility is a reflection of male health uh, and there are many health issues that we will uncover because of a low sperm count. Um, healthcare professionals and healthcare psychologists talk about the psychology of nudge. So how can you nudge a man with a bad lifestyle uh, who is potentially damaging himself in various ways? How do you nudge him into a better lifestyle, a more healthy lifestyle? Well, of course, one of the ways is when he is young and presents with some fertility, because this may be an expression of other conditions. And I think we have a public health responsibility to address this. No longer should we be saying to a man in his late 20s with a low sperm count, oh, well, that's just the way it is. What about some IVF? We should be taking this on and saying, well, one of the reasons that you've got a low sperm count is that you are overweight, and you can really address this. One of the reasons you've got poor quality sperm is because you smoke. And it is absolutely clear that if you stop smoking, you will be more fertile. It is clear. One of the reasons is that you drink too much. And you reduce your alcohol intake from 50, 60 units or intermittent binging down to 10 units a week, which, you know, isn't uh, difficult or shouldn't be. And you will be more fertile. Um, then there are other issues that may be hidden. We talk about hidden chlamydia, but there are many genital infections that are sexually transmitted, that are difficult to identify, but it is at least my opinion that if you treat those infections, but first you have to look for them, you once again will improve sperm quality. I think what we see is there is no, there is no one thing that's going to make you better. It is an entire approach to lifestyle, isn't it? But, but then talking about that, when you look at my issue at that time, you know, I didn't drink during the week, I didn't binge drink at the weekend, I didn't smoke, I exercised, I ate healthily. So I was already doing all the things that, in theory, would be improving. Especially when you see the fat bloke in the pub with five kids. Yeah. Sure. You know, it's, it's a hard comparison. So if I was already doing many of the... There is, of course, a question of, as he's in the pub and so fat all the time, whose are they? Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> cheap. And what's going to happen to yeah. them later? Yeah. But with it being a 50-50 issue with fertility, with it being 50-50, yes. you know, and the male factor not really being discussed enough, and it being an issue for one in six couples, 
ultimately we need to get the awareness mm-hmm. out there for men to speak up, to feel that they've got the knowledge and the, the power to ask for more investigation ultimately, would you say? Yes. It's asking for more information and investigation. Where we find ourselves in some difficulty is the evidence that what we do works. And of course it's exceedingly difficult to get that evidence whilst the men are locked into fertility programs and fertility units. And I make the point again, this isn't a wicked thing. This isn't some overarching design that is frustrating this. But it is genuinely difficult to know, evidentially, whether all of these compounding interventions would reduce the IVF rates and increase natural fertility. We can't have the evidence to present if we're talking about presenting to government until we actually embed ourselves, a bit like journalists in a battle zone, until the urologists embed themselves in fertility units. And I think, as with all of these things, the way forward is for a combined approach. It's a multidisciplinary approach to fertility involving, of course, gynaecologists who've done a fantastic job across the board, probably embryologists who have a view about the nature of those sperm, reproductive endocrinologists who have a view about the male hormone profile, and urologists who understand the urogenital tract. And what I would like to see developed is this MDT, multidisciplinary team approach, to taking on couples and understanding, firstly, whether actually they should be able to do this naturally, and secondly, if we have some doubt about that, the second question is can we modify their lifestyle, their hormonal background, treat their genital tracts in such a way that not only may they conceive naturally and we give them the clear information that this is a possibility, but that also, and this is the vital thing, that if we intervene up front, then the chances of IVF working first time are increased. Now, until we have that evidence, we are not going to be able to change behaviour, but at the same time it's difficult to get it because The patients who we mostly, the specialists in male fertility, the patients we mostly see are those who failed two, three, four cycles of IVF. Now they are the most difficult to crack. But if we can prove, and we're trying to gather the evidence now, that the fourth, fifth cycle of IVF after male interventions succeeded, then we are going to begin to make some ground. Of course, you need huge numbers to do this because it could easily be said, well, crikey, this is just a numbers game. How often have I heard that? And it was just the case that this couple who'd failed four cycles rolled the dice for a fifth time and they were lucky. So in order to prove that the intervention made the difference, not just chance, you need hundreds of couples And we are trying to get the information at the moment. So how do you put that out there? I believe that it is the people, the patients, who because of the internet have more power actually than government. I mean, cranky, look what's happened in the last year. But what should be the most powerful tool is proper research-based publication. Mm. Research 
conducted in a proper way with peer review and published in high-impact rated journals. Now, it's difficult to do that because you need vast numbers. It's probably the best way, although word of mouth, word of internet uh, does bring the patients in and gives us the substrate to work upon. So an ideal sample, you talked about the Danish study of 1,100 couples who were not even considering fertility treatment. Would would that be your ideal or would it be people that had had, say, one failed cycle? Would you like to have seen whether there'd been that intervention? Sure. If you can get 1,100 couples who resolutely are not going to have IVF and you intervene on the male side and follow them for probably two years, a minimum, then you would, that would be a big enough sample to make the point that the natural conception rates go up because you have intervened with the males. Quite difficult, though, to get those numbers untreated when there is a reasonable resolution, national resolution, to treat them with IVF. I mean, the right way to do this is as I outlined, to embed people interested in male fertility at the front door of the fertility unit. That's really the way to do it, because then you take a combined holistic approach and everybody then knows that there is not inevitably one outcome to this consultation, which is IVF. They know that they will be looked at as a couple, they will be looked at as individuals, And if there is a general feeling that improvement is possible, we will give it six months, for example. I mean, if you think about it, if at the time that we started on the journey and you were sent to a gynecologist and I was sent um, to a urologist and then the gynecologist and the urologist then spoke to each other, that would have been the right way to do things. And I think the point is that even if the outcome had been precisely the same, the two of you would have felt better about it. Which is important for the rest of your lives. Well, but it's also important for you know the future of fertility, shouldn't it? Mm, because, absolutely. You know, because if, if there is a whole section of the community that could be conceiving naturally, yeah, that's got to be that's got to be a good thing. And of course, the converse of that is that we don't want even a few people who could conceive naturally to be effectively told that they never will. That's the downside of this. Well, we've got friends who had twins from fertility treatment and then have a a third naturally, and they were told they could never have children. I mean, they had their twins on the third cycle, but they were told they couldn't have children. Yeah. Jonathan, thank you for your time. It's been lovely chatting. Very good, Natalie. So thank you to Jonathan. Thank you for seeing us. It was a really, really interesting experience for the, the pair of us. Thank you to Rich, my husband, for letting me use that chat and if you'd like to find out a bit more about what we've been talking about have a look at the show notes which are the fertilitypodcast.com forward slash rich you can email me and let me know whether you have had any investigation at whatever stage the more of us that put the spotlight on this and talk about it and and share our experiences i think it's so vital and and as you heard hopefully it can help ivf cycles ICSI cycles be successful the first time rather than the third fourth fifth time So just email me, natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com with your thoughts. And I hope this has really been of interest. Until the next time.